Hey, everyone. Welcome back to SEL Convergence. We're back for another episode. And this time, I feel like I say it every time, but we're going to do something a little bit different and talk to someone who has a little bit of a different background than anyone we've spoken to before. Tom, take it away. Mike, Mike I am so thrilled. Uh, thank, thank you for, for always, always coordinating. And thank you for producing. I'm thrilled, to, I'm thrilled that you're my friend. And I'm so very happy that we're together. But tonight, I'm already starting to geek out because <laughs> Julia Skolnick is with us. And Julia has uh, created this beautiful company called Professional Learning Partnerships. And every time I speak to Julia, I learn something new. I learned something new about STEM education. I learned something new about neuroscience. And Mike, you know how how absolutely gushy I get about neuroscience. So Julia Skolnick, welcome to the SEL Convergence. Thank you so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into some neuroscientific myths and facts, can you tell our listeners about yourself, about your wonderful company, Professional Learning Partnerships, and uh, the kinds of things you're doing right now and how, how folks can find you? Absolutely. Well, thanks again for having me. You're such an inspiration to me. So I get to geek out on all the work you do, Tom. Um, So my background is in education and cognitive science and psychology, and it all kind of meets around the spot of learning. I'm really interested in how learning happens, what makes it successful, what gets in the way of it. And I started my career thinking I would be a classroom teacher, really excited about young children, Um, practicing and studying to become an elementary educator. And my path kind of wove in and out of the research world. I worked in universities doing uh, memory research, actually in the Department of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania with Dr. Mike Kahana, who is fantastic and very inspirational. Um, We moved to Chicago, so I was there for a while while my husband was in medical school at Northwestern University, did some different kinds of research um, in in public health and in medicine, and I knew I needed to get back into education. Um, But with this research angle, those years I had spent in research, I was starting to ask really different questions about how education works, how learning and memory works. And that passion has driven me to today. This was, you know, 20 years ago when I started really my career in education and my undergraduate learning. And I could never let go of that question about how does learning work in the brain and why doesn't every single teacher know this? Why aren't they an expert in in how learning and memory works in the brain? So that sort of propelled me into some design-based research at Northwestern, um, working in technology and STEM education, like you talked about, partnering in the community. And then coming back to Philadelphia, I worked, I had the pleasure of working at the Franklin Institute Science Museum for the last 10 years. Um, And that was where I really found my groove as an educator and a science communicator in passionately working on how the neuroscience of learning and memory can actually you know, empower educators to make better decisions in schools and districts. Um, so that brings me today to, to my new organization, Professional Learning Partnerships. And our goal is to create long-lasting partnerships with schools, districts, and other educational organizations to transform learning and culture, empowering educators to make research-based decisions rooted in the science of the brain and learning, um, both in the classroom and for leaders. I think leaders are a really important group that need to understand this research just as well. I love uh, 
two of the final things you just said. I love long lasting partnerships. Something that, uh, this is my 49th year in education. Something that schools are notorious for is new idea, new idea, new idea, a new project almost every year. And, and we really need to help our friends understand, at least my belief, you, you may or may not disagree with me, but, but long lasting relationships and long-term change go together. Uh, it's, it's not one magical professional development, but it's three, four, five years or more to really create sustained change. I could not agree with you more, Tom. I'm so glad that you picked up on that long lasting piece because what I know is true is that change in practice starts with changes in beliefs and that does not change overnight. And a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight, unlearning bad science mm. is not one shot in the arm. It's really thinking about these ideas, having a trusted partner who's going to walk you through how to change the way you think about things, what it looks like in your practice, and that sustained change, just like you talk about, takes time and it takes a trusted partner who's not going to leave once they've given you a service and come out. That's not really what, what I'm about. That's why partnerships is in our name, because the, the essence of the change is in the relationships between people. And that's what I hope to bring to the districts I work I love with. it. You talk, you use the concept unlearning, and, and, and I actually love it. So tonight, uh, we're going to hit some sacred cows, some things that quite honestly, uh, over my whole career, I've heard people hold on to as absolute fact and truth. So the idea here, let, let's start digging into some of these. Let's, let's go really big, big, broad brush first. Why is uh, science of learning? Why is neuroscience and why is the science of learning important to the everyday educator? So here we have our friend, Mike Mandel, who's still in his school, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Mike. Yep. On a seven o'clock on a Tuesday night. Recording on location. <laughs> and, you know, he's been teaching all day long, as have all of our friends in, in education. Why is it important they understand neuroscience? Why is it important they understand the science of learning? That's a really great question, Tom. And I think, you know, scientists like to be critical, too. So I, I wouldn't say you know, every single research article or every finding that comes out of neuroscience is going to plug right into the classroom. I think there's a very nuanced way in which these large understandings about the brain can set the foundation for how we educate and why we educate. So I, I like to think about it, you know, not as every single piece of research is going to make its way into a teacher's hands. It's complicated and it's, it's you know, doesn't always directly relate. But neuromyths, I think, are a really interesting place where neuroscience has advanced. We know a lot that is true about fundamental ways that the brain works that somehow just does not get into pre-service education for teachers. It doesn't get into in-service training for teachers. And so even at that very basic level, we have to unlearn some of the bad science so we're not making mistakes or boxing kids in or labeling them in certain ways that just is not how our brains actually work. So I think that's the fundamental place. I don't want any teacher to operate from a place of false science when they're Beautiful. trying to, to do the best by our kids. Well, let's start to unlearn. So uh, you and I have been communicating back and forth for a while, and we've identified a handful of, of, of neuromyths 
that we'd like to dispel tonight. And I, I am really looking forward to this. Let me begin with the first one because uh, this idea of emotions do not affect learning. Uh, we, we like to stand back and we like to think that we can be objective. I'm not even sure we can, quite honestly, uh, but maybe you can help me with that. But you know, this, this myth that, that emotions don't affect learning, here we are in the pandemic. Here we are in, in uh, uh, you know, people are afraid. Uh, we may even uh, say that almost everybody in schools is experiencing some level of grief, loss, or trauma. So talk to us about why is emotions do not affect learning? Why is that a myth? Right. So I think it's interesting when you say it out loud, most people would would hear that statement and say, that doesn't sound right to me. Of course, emotions are part of learning. Yet the way schools are set up, it doesn't jive with that. You know, a kid could walk into a class really upset and a teacher might say, sorry, you're not feeling so good, but turn to page 42. Today, we're going to learn about trigonometry. Yeah. Um, and so the the classroom doesn't really have the space yet. We're getting there. But traditionally, schools don't hold emotions the same way they do as those cognitive demands that we have on kids, right? We think that the, the responsibility of schools is to teach new knowledge, teach new skills, and that almost operates in a vacuum outside of the human beings that we are. But what we know about the brain today is that the, the last thing we do in order of importance in our brain is think rationally. What we do first, we have to survive. You know, our brain needs to take care of our breathing, our temperature regulation, all the organs working well in our body. And then that next order of operation is our emotional regulation. The feelings of safety, the feelings of belonging, the feelings of acceptance, that those emotional needs and whether we feel fearful, fearful or not comes way before rational thought. So that lens of understanding order of importance in the brain and us as human beings needing our emotional needs met before we can do any higher order thinking is really important for educators and leaders to understand that it's our responsibility to create safe learning environments. And when I say safe, I mean physically safe, culturally safe. Um, you know, all of the ways in which people understand if they are represented in that community, that's going to trigger the, the same um, ancient emotional systems in our brain that will either allow learning to happen or prevent it from happening. So I want to dig into this a little bit more because it sounds very, very significant. So the neuroscience, tell me if I'm correct, if I'm hearing you correctly, the neuroscience is telling us unless that learner feels emotionally safe, he or she cannot learn effectively. Yes, I would agree with that. Okay. Absolutely. And there are certain levels to, you know, it's not completely one or the other. There are gray, shades of gray in between. And I would say that's influenced by developmental stage and age. So for a young child, for a kindergartner who doesn't feel safe, they don't have a lot of that executive functioning ability there to help catch them in that. So it's going to be much harder for them to learn. An older student, you know, maybe towards 11th, 12th grade or a young adult may have more tools to be able to help themselves through that. But it depends on the severity of the lack of safety mm -hmm. um, or how threatened you feel and mm -hmm. what that is triggering through your brain. Also, previous experiences with trauma, depending on how 
how likely you are to feel aroused in a negative way, you know, it, it can be different for different individuals, different situations. But generally, the principle you said is, is absolutely true. So you mentioned trauma. Um, here we are, uh, a full year, even a little bit longer into the pandemic. Fear, grief, loss, possible trauma for many, if not all of us. We also have a, another major issue, social justice. Uh, the, the ruling in Minnesota just this afternoon, uh, I'm sure will uh, activate many different emotions in, in many different individuals. And um, you know, our, our children are still expected to come to school and our teachers are still expected to teach. Uh, dream with me a little bit. School's gonna open next year. My friend Mike will be heading back to his school district, ready to, you know, all the administrators wanna open up, all the school boards want us to open up. Everybody wants to come, come rushing back. And, and uh, I had the absolute privilege today to work with the school district leadership team saying, uh, could you please help us start the school year not with academics? Could you please help us start with social emotional learning and wellness for the staff mm -hmm. and then the students as the year unfolds? So if, if, I, um, if you and I together had the incredible opportunity to say to a school district, here's best practice, here's the way you should start school next year coming out of the pandemic, what would you advise? So you and I have talked about this before, Tom, but in my framework about the brain and what is make or break for any human being in, a, in an environment of work or learning is trust, that fundamental need to have a connection with the people around you. And the way you establish that trust is getting to know people on a personal level understanding who they are, whether that's between a leader and a teacher or a teacher and a student or students and each other, teachers mm -hmm. and each other. We need to feel connected and that the place in which we are expected to do these higher order things, whether it's your work or learning, that you are supported and that you are seen and you are understood for who you are so you can relax and do the work that you have Beautiful. to do. And I think um, not enough work environments or school environments pay attention to that really fundamental piece and just kind of blow past it and move on. You know, this is the curriculum. These are our objectives. These are the state standards. Wait, you know, before we get to those things, who are the people in front of us? Education is all about people. And so who is that human being? What makes them work? What do they love? What do they hate? What is their home life? Um, that goes for adults too. Once you know the whole person, everything comes so much easier from there. But I think that's that's a really important place to start. So what I'm hearing, everything begins with relationship building. Everything begins with connection. And, and in that relationship building and connection, we can establish a level of trust. Absolutely. And, and it, it, as soon as you mentioned trust, I, I you know I love Paul Zach's work. And he talks about the virtuous cycle. And I know I'm simplifying, but oxytocin gives birth to empathy, empathy to morality, morality to trust, and trust back to building oxytocin. And round and round and round we go. Uh, I, I love that model. It's pretty impressive. And I think some of his research, too, to induce those feelings of trust really blow my mind. I know we were talking about that recently. Um, but it's really true. Your brain 
look, seeks those ways of feeling connected and there's a biochemical response to that. Mm. And that feels good and that does good things to us, not only as far as functioning day to day, but for learning. Um, there's another example of that too, when studies show that when we have our curiosity peaked, when we feel curious about something, dopamine, that feel good chemical flows through our brain and that leads to better learning and memory. So there are these mechanisms for how we function that educators may not first think about when we're designing lessons mm. or when we're setting culture in our classrooms or in schools, but the neuroscience is there to help us achieve our goals. And that's sort of my lens on why I think educators really need to understand the science of learning to, to have some quick ways to get the results that they're looking for. So as we leave that topic, I think the important message to our, our listeners and our educator friends is always begin with relationship and connection. Absolutely. And think about your students or think about, if you're a leader, think about your teachers as human beings. Mm. And another element that I think the science really highlights for me is that people don't respond well to feeling like robots. And I think we can all relate to that. We've probably all had experiences where, you know, you, if you're a teacher, you're given a scripted curriculum or, you know, a project you're supposed to implement start to finish, or you're a student and you have a cookbook recipe. When we feel like robots, our humanhood is kind of taken away from us and that doesn't feel good. So when we treat people like human beings, we see them for the whole people, the whole, you know, person that they are, the life they live outside, the interests and skills that they have. It's not just about a lesson or just about a curriculum. It's about those human beings. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, let's go to this next item uh, that I have been taught from, you know, way back in uh, the early 70s. One of the myths that I'd love you to talk about is the myth of learning styles. This may blow some minds out there. Oh man, learning styles <laughs> is my favorite neuromyth to talk about because I get blank stares when I, when I talk about this and some angry faces back at me, a little bit of death stare. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? Just like you said, I've had you know hundreds of hours of training on learning styles. It seems so right. How can it be wrong? Right. And I think this is a perfect example of where science and educational theory completely miss each other. Mm. Um, and the educational track just like runs away with something that was never actually proven in, in scientific fact. So, you know, we come from Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences, and he'll be the first one to call out learning styles, which I find very reassuring. But his theory of multiple intelligences is that there are multiple ways in which we can be intelligent, where we have skills and strengths, but they're not meant to be mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. There's just lots of different ways in which we can think critically, in which we can engage with the world, um, you know, kind of taking that original IQ model and mm -hmm. blowing that up. It's, yeah. There's not just one test to show us how smart we are right. or one way of defining that. Where that goes wrong is implying that brains are wired to learn best through one modality, which if you stop and think about it, doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I really want people to, to stop and think, you know, is my brain really wired so that listening is, is best for me and looking is best for you and touching is best for another person? What the science actually shows is that the more ways in which we experience something, the more it means to us, the more novel it is, the more exciting it is, that's what leads to better learning and memory. 
it's not about the mode in which we hear it. Um, and there's studies that show when teachers teach students in their perceived best learning style, quote unquote, they don't learn better. Mm. So it's kind of a figment of our imagination in that it's related to the ways that our brains are wired. The more, the more accurate way to describe this, I would say get rid of learning style from your vocabulary. It does not exist. Instead, use the word learning preference or, mm. you know, comfortable habit around learning. Mm -hmm. It's something that feels familiar. We've done it a lot. We have practice with it a lot. It might be a preference, but it doesn't mean that our brains are wired to learn best according to that preference. It's just what's most comfortable, perhaps, mm. to us. And, and did I hear you correctly? It's important to my brain to take me out of my comfort zone, to give me many different opportunities, many different yes. styles, if I may? Yeah, so I'm a fan of using modalities or senses to talk about, you know, learning. If you're hearing something, seeing something, touching something, it's not really a style of learning. It's more the way in which you receive that information or the, the type of stimuli that helps you with learning. Um, so if you are learning a new concept and you hear about it, you talk about it, you see it, you touch something related to it, you visit a space that's related to it, you have conversations with different people about it. Every time you're experiencing that concept, you're building new and different connections in your brain. Those synapses are strengthening, they're becoming more complex, and that memory is becoming stronger. So it's, it's really about diversifying the ways in which you engage with an idea and not kind of focusing on, in on one preference that seems to be most comfortable to you. So again, please, please correct me if I'm, in, if I'm wrong. What I think I heard you say is what you've studied in how our brains work, how our brains learn, it does support Gardner's multiple intelligences. The only thing I do know is there is no scientific evidence to support learning styles. Okay. And this is okay. kind of an interesting spot, you know, as I bridge neuroscience, cognitive science, educational research and practice, people always want to draw really clear lines between what's happening in the brain and behavior and what we see between people. And it's not that clear usually. Mm. Um, yeah. and, and I mean, that's true of any science. We have to, you know, look at it in a, in a full landscape of all the variables that are being studied and, and the ways in which the studies happened. But I think to have that holistic view of generalities we know are true about the brain and behavior and try to look at the whole picture is mm -hmm. kind of, is what I encourage educators to do. Mike, I'm very curious as a special educator, uh, how, do, how does this sound to you? How does it feel? Uh, I, I guess I never really thought about it in that, in the, in those specific terms. And what I mean by that is that when I think about learning styles, it's almost like, um, I guess I've always considered it more of a preference. Like I know that if, if what I'm teaching is presented in a certain way that certain kids are going to react more strongly to that, but not necessarily that that's the only avenue I can go down with them. Okay. Um, so like, oh, you know, like the lesson today is really like, you know, bodily kinesthetic or something like that. It's like, well, the other half of the class is just going to have to sit there today since they're not, you know, that's, that's not their preference. Right. Um, so it makes a lot of sense hearing it kind of laid out that way, but I could see how a lot of people fall into that trap where they want to kind of, 
uh, restrict their their views of kids or adults and how they're going to, going to be able to learn. And I don't think that gives the the kids an opportunity to surprise us by what they can do. Mm. So it's it when I hear it, it's nothing that's like surprising or shocking me, but it's wonderful to kind of to hear it laid out in these terms and in this way because it's not something I've ever really put conscious thought towards before. I I love what you said giving children a chance to surprise us. That's, that's beautiful. That's learning right there. I love I that. I agree, Mike. I love the way that you said that too. What's so interesting is that it's human nature to want to put things in boxes or people in boxes because it's more efficient for us. When we label and categorize, we say, okay, this person's this, moving on. That's kind of human nature. But what's dangerous about that is then we kind of set up this self-fulfilling prophecy for kids. Kids take that on themselves. So maybe it's not a learning style, but maybe it's, you know, you're not good at math or I don't think you're good at math. And even if you never verbalize that to the child, they're going to sense it. They're going to internalize it. So what I like to encourage educators to do is to really strip away those categorizations. And the reason why we can say that is because we know the br- that our brains change through our entire lifetimes. Mm. So there's no reason to put those labels on ourselves or others because we can defy those labels anytime we want just by, you know, trying to learn different things and push ourselves in different ways. So it's more about like guess second guessing those uh, categorizations that we put on people. So it sounds like there's still a chance I can learn math. Always. You can learn anything. The synapses are always firing and combining. Even at 69, they're still firing? Until, until the end, Tom. Good. Always. Good. So let, let I, I can't wait to get to this next one. Uh, this is a myth that I'm really happy to know it's a myth. Multitasking. Because I, I don't think a week goes by where I don't hear from someone that they're multitasking. And I, I don't buy it. So please... Uh, help us understand why multitasking is a myth. Oh, multitasking is a fun one because this is where our brain tricks us into thinking we can do something that we actually can't because it feels like we can and perception is not reality. So what the science would more accurately label multitasking as is task switching. So what we're doing when we're actually juggling multiple tasks that take focus is our brain is switching back and forth between those things. It doesn't feel like that's what's happening, but our brain can really only focus on one task that takes attention at a time. And so what happens when we switch between those tasks is it takes us much longer to do both. We make more mistakes between those two, and we're kind of losing our train of thought. As if we, you know, instead of just doing one thing at a time, doing it really well, doing it more quickly, we're, we're having a lot of trade-offs when we're trying to juggle a lot of things at once. Mm. So again, multitasking, I would strip that from your vocabulary. It doesn't exist. What we're doing instead is task switching um, and that we would be so much more efficient if we single tasked instead of tried to multitask. It seems to create so much stress. Uh, it, it, you know, we, uh, we are, I think we live in a chronically stressed culture, society, mm-hmm. and, and this idea of multitask, I just see these incredibly deeply committed educators that I meet with every day, they're exhausted. Uh, and, and, you know, I think in their desire to serve, 
and and this mistaken belief that they can multitask, they're burning themselves out. Absolutely. And you see that all over the corporate space. You see it in education. You see it in our personal lives. And I think we are getting used to being distracted. You know, if you don't get a ping on your phone every however often, you're kind of looking at it, wondering what's happening. So we're used to those triggers kind of coming up for us very frequently and diverting our attention. It almost feels unfamiliar to focus uninterruptedly. Mm. And that's where I think we could use a little bit more retraining of our brain about how to focus and block out distraction. Because when you do that and you get to the end of a, you know, maybe it's 20 minutes, maybe it's 10 minutes, who knows? When you've really focused and done something well, there's a reward at the end of that. Mm -hmm. It feels different. It's less taxing on the brain by jumping back and forth between many things. You feel way more exhausted after 30 minutes of juggling five or six things than if you really just focused on one. So many of our uh, educators, particularly our special educators, uh, and particularly those who deal with behavioral concerns, uh, uh, are using a lot of mindfulness practice today. Uh, some have what they refer to as a calming corner where there's mm -hmm. you know, furniture and uh, maybe some music to help children calm down. Uh, does, does this connect at all to this, this myth of multitasking? That's a good question. I think when, when we feel like there's too much going on and we need to calm down, I do think that is a helpful exercise for our brain. I feel as though multi, different people probably experience multitasking differently. I'm thinking of our administrators or our mm -hmm. superintendents who are always on the run and are almost forced to juggle multiple things constantly. That becomes their norm. They're probably a little more used to it, less agitated by that than some children maybe, right. feeling like they need to juggle a lot of things that's new and uncomfortable. But I think both situations are just as dangerous. We don't want to get too comfortable being really distracted so that we forget how to focus and really do things well. But mindfulness has shown a lot of benefits in the brain, short-term and long-term, finding ways to, to bring ourselves back to centered, um, kind of you know, rebalance all the chemicals in our brain and get ourselves ready to, to start anew. That's wonderful. One of the, the, uh, the tools that a, a friend of ours, who did a podcast with us early on, Brian Aikens, actually has this uh, little device. I, I don't know if it's on his phone or if, I think it's on his phone where this, this little bell or this tone goes off you know, every X number of minutes and, and everybody just takes a breath and calms down that refocusing you mentioned, and then they're back on task. And it seems to work beautifully for him. Absolutely. Even the um, exercise of deep breathing gets more oxygen into your body and your brain, which is really important for clear thinking and functioning. And sometimes when we're so stressed, we're not taking enough breaths and, you know, we need that oxygen. That's yep. pretty important to, to our survival and functioning. Thank you. Thank you so much. So the next item I want to look at, attention span. Now, again, we it, it looks like we're in the territory of special education, but I suspect it probably goes beyond special education. Um, tell us, you know, it, the idea of, of having a short attention span. So that's a myth. So, you know, a lot of times in science or in education, people like to throw out numbers you know, oh, your attention span is your age plus one, or kids have a five-second attention span or a six-second attention span. 
I have yet to see very solid science that would support any numbers like that. Mm. And I, I would encourage people to share it if you know of it. Um, but it just, it's not that concrete. And I think what's interesting about the brain is that we pay attention to things we care about or that are novel or interesting or meaningful. And we don't pay attention to th the things that we don't care about or are boring to us. So it's not really just about the amount of seconds, um, but it's the quality of the experience. And some of the research I'm really fascinated by is um, Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow, which I think I we've talked it. about before, Tom. I love his work. Um, but the idea that there's there are these networks in the brain, the default mode network and others that operate in the background that are not in our conscious areas of thought, that is often this, the place where inspiration and creativity comes from. And when you can get so involved in a task or an activity, and it may even be a rote activity, it could be something, you know, like running or mm -hmm. um knitting or cooking or something that kind of distracts your mind. And then it goes into this other place where you can think about things endlessly or you kind of lose sense of time and space. There's a lot of focus and attention that can come in a mm -hmm. headspace like that. Mm -hmm. So I like to kind of deconstruct this idea of attention span because it's not as simple as we want it to be. Uh, and I think if educators can focus more on what intrinsically motivates students and get them in that flow mode. Same for teachers. Teachers are passionate about many things. If we can get ourselves in that area of flow, attention could be boundless. I want to explore this a little bit more with you because I, I think I have in my lifetime been in the zone. I've been in that flow state. Uh, early on, it was in athletics. Uh, for, I can remember vividly uh, moments on the basketball court where everything went in, no matter what I did, I, 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 it just went in the basket. I remember once falling down and throwing it up and it went in the basket. <laughs> uh, it, it was, I, I think I scored 44 points that night. It was just, everything worked. Wow. And, and then uh, I've also felt it very frequently in art. Uh, I'm not sure if either one of you are aware. I actually started my, my college career as an art major. Wow. And so when I, uh, I don't do it very much now, but when I am back in the, the paint room, which is my wife is an art teacher, when I'm back in that room and I'm working with abstract design and colors, I have no sense of time. It's completely gone. I am immersed in a different world of color and shape and movement. And, and then an, another experience, I've had it, I have it a few times and I love it. When I'm speaking to a large group, and um, something happens and something will come out of my mouth. And I almost want to stop and say, where'd that come from? <laughs> I, I didn't plan it. It wasn't in my notes. And I, I love that experience. So, and, and now I want to circle back. I want to circle back to the myth of learning styles and the work you talked about with Gardner. One of the things I loved about his work is I'll, I'll use my words, the more diversity we can bring to our content, the more engaging it will be, and possibly the more opportunity for flow state. Yes, no, what do you think? I agree. I was just talking with my uh, teammate Tara Cox about this yesterday. I think, you know, passion is something that is so important for people to find in life to be fulfilled. 
And school is a place where kids can find their passions, but they have to be exposed, just like you said, to a diversity of life experiences and of topics and of things that pique their curiosity and interest. And when we expose people to lots of different things to learn about, people to talk to, issues in the world to get excited about or passionate about, that's where those, you know, that intrinsic motivation is born. And that's where that comes from. So I completely agree with you. I think more exposure and opportunities to learn, to try, to grow. Isn't that the point of school, right? I hope so. I really hope so. Uh, and, and also it is the, uh, it's part of the equation that brings us empathy. Uh, one of my favorite books is entitled Empathy by Roman Krasnarek. And earlier on today, you mentioned how important it is to, to be immersed in other cultures and to, to be curious about other cultures. Those are actually two of the four things that he said actually builds our empathy. Uh, another one is deep, deep conversation. And he really, really makes it quite clear that's not technology. Absolutely. It, it, it's you and I looking at each other. Uh, uh, I imagine those mirror neurons starting to fire and, and knowing that we have a connection. Absolutely. And you know what that makes me think of? There's research um, describing the innovation process, which is also something I'm really intrigued by and something I lead professional learning about. And studies show that international travel is actually one of the best ways to inspire innovation. And the reason for that is, just like you talked about, it's the juxtaposition of what you know and understand up against something unfamiliar to you. Mm. And I think it's not only innovation, but empathy. That's where we see kind of what is different and special, but also what's common. And that's the birth of new and exciting ideas and also empathy for other cultures and other human beings. I'm smiling because that's Krasnarik's fourth travel. Really? Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It's conversation with no tech. It's curiosity. It's being immersed in other cultures and it's travel. And he even says, and if you can't physically travel, travel in your armchair. So, you know, today, particularly during the pandemic, you know, I, uh, I can get on and, and be in a museum and I can walk through that museum virtually. So, yeah, it, it, that, now he, his work was leaning towards empathy. I'm very excited about this idea that it leads towards innovation. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there are so many fields that operate in silos, but deal with very similar problems. So my husband is in medicine. I'm in education. We both study the brain in our different worlds. But I've always been fascinated hearing about the way the, the types of problems that are solved in medicine, even the way doctors are educated. So, you know, mm. my husband has had some really great progressive medical education and he's taught, you know, skills about how to work with patients and what the human side of medicine looks like. And I think when you juxtapose things that you wouldn't normally put next to each other, like classroom teaching and you know, a, a doctor taking care of a patient and you look at what's similar and what's different, you have these aha moments. Yes. And that's really, I think, where the beauty of innovation can come from is when you take these observations from different parts of life, you kind of look at them, ask questions and start to find new ways of thinking about things that you didn't see before. I love when the light bulb goes off. I love it for myself. I love seeing it. It's, it's, oh, yeah. it's, a, it's, 
you know, besides being with my wife, learning is the most exciting thing in the world. Totally agree. So uh, let's talk about adults and children. Many, many people in education would connect that to developmental theory and tell us that they learn very differently. Children and adults learn very, very differently. Now, I'm really curious about your response since I am in predominantly the adult education side of the world, as are you. Mm-hmm. So I know there is a whole field of adult learning theory, and I have full respect for, for that theory, and I would never want to um, you know, discredit any of that. But I think my experience, you know, like you said at the beginning, introducing me, I've worked in a lot of different areas of education and research. I'm not the traditional classroom educator. And what I see is that learning is universal, particularly my experience at the Franklin Institute, where we want, you know, a five-year-old to be just as excited as a 45-year-old when they would come through our exhibits or go through our programs. And there are very fundamental things that get people interested in learning, whether you're five or 45. And I think where it can go wrong for adults is treating adults as though they can listen endlessly and not be engaged via lecture just because they're adults. And the science of learning would tell us that's really poor practice. People, no matter how old you are, need to be engaged interactively with multiple senses as frequently as possible. Because the more active a learner's brain is, the better they're going to learn and remember whatever it is that experience Mm -hmm. is showing them. So I'm sure there are small differences, particularly when it comes around executive functioning. Mm -hmm. Adults have a lot more restraint, a lot more ability to control our behaviors and our mannerisms. Even if we're really bored, you know, you may not be able to tell by looking at us. For a child, that may look a little different. However, learning principles, I would really encourage anyone who does Um, professional learning for adults to think about those same strategies and practices that work well for kids. Because if you do that, if you get people engaged, actively talking, you do this all the time, Tom, using their hands, you know, using their bodies to learn, the result's going to be more memorable. Mm. Um, We don't have to treat adults differently just because there's these old practices of, you know, big lecture style programs that are less engaging. I'm with you 100%. One of the things that I I actually tell all of our instructors in the master's degree program. And I also tell my incoming students, if you have an instructor that's talking for more than 20 minutes, call me. (laughs) And I I mean that sincerely and I will intervene. And I I have done it once. Uh, And and I sat with him and he said, I'm I'm sorry, I just forgot. I just got, got, I understand. But for me, that engagement comes in many forms. And yes, I do believe in movement. I do believe in, in hands-on physical activity, but I also believe in, in uh, another kind of movement, the power of story. Mm-hmm. I think story, and, and please help me, I, I, I'm not, you know, I don't have your expertise. Story, I think, captures and, 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 and re-engages, I, I hope, the person's brain, and it, it, it brings them in. It absolutely does. There are certain tricks in the brain based on the way we've evolved over time, based on the way our society has gone from generation to generation. There are certain things that stick better than others. 
stories is one of them. Music is another one. Ah. I find music completely fascinating in the brain. That was one of those things, you know, writing a paper in college that still I can, I'm so fascinated by that topic. Uh, but storytelling is something that has allowed culture to be preserved over generations and over thousands of years. So our brains are wired to be intrigued by stories, to want to follow the stories. It's not equal to, you know, being taught facts that don't matter as much to us. So you're absolutely onto something. Our brains do care a lot about stories, about narratives. There's often emotional elements or mysterious elements to stories that people are hanging on and want to find out more about. So there's a lot of reasons why our brains are intrigued by stories. And now, so you've got me intrigued. Tell me about music. Uh, I love music. Uh, I'm a percussionist. Uh, so, so, so tell, so let's, I'm a classroom teacher. How would you recommend I bring music into my classroom to enhance the uh, the learning process? So in my experience and in my understanding of research, which is still has a little ways to go to really pinpoint exactly why music is so memorable, but tying learning through music. So, you know, for younger kids, this feels more appropriate, but putting some new ideas to song or teaching kids a song that helps them remember something. Those things really stick. And there, there are a lot of regions of our brain that are working when we are attuned to memory, attuned to music, or when we're singing, when it makes us feel something, when there's a rhythmic element to it, we might be dancing and moving our bodies. So music is almost like a whole brain type of experience um, that lets us remember it longer. Mm -hmm. The place where music, I think, can or may not work exactly is sort of playing music in the background when learning. Okay. For some people, that is really helpful and lets them tune out distractions so they can focus. For other kids, it's really distracting. And it might depend on the type of music, the volume of the music, whether they've heard it before or not. So when people talk about, um, you know, is listening to music and studying multitasking, for some, it might be. For mm -hmm. others, it might actually increase focus. Mm -hmm. So that's the one element of music I think is less tied to what you were asking related to memory. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, you could probably think of a song you were taught in elementary school to remember something. For me, it's the 50s dates. I can still remember the song <laughs> that I was taught in elementary that's school. That's great. That's great. <laughs> Uh, I I went to Catholic school. We didn't use much music. Oh no, <laughs> Mike. I'm curious. Uh, what's happening with music in your elementary school? Is is uh, there any anything going on? Is do you know you know of any colleagues uh, that that you may be utilizing music? Yeah, I think that traditionally, when you look at some of our younger grades in school, the music is a huge huge driving vehicle when we're trying to get kids to learn content. And I think that primarily happens with a lot of rote learning or things that kids are like asked to internalize and be able to recall very quickly and less with more abstract concepts. But I definitely see that as we get through to older grades that the perception is that it's a little bit babyish or that they've kind of outgrown that, that, that type of learning. So I definitely see it, but I, I absolutely believe that we kind of trend that as the kids get older, I think they 
psych themselves into uh like oh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sing this song to learn something you know i'm in fifth grade that's ridiculous um so because i've tried it in my class or even working with fourth and fifth graders and i get a lot of pushback from stuff like that unless i can make it like really hip or you know or or you know something like that but it's i've i've seen it work wonders but i do know that it has a certain stigma attached to it okay so, Julia, if I heard you correctly, on, on our conversation, adults and children do not learn differently. That it would In be my important, opinion. Oh, yeah, it would be important that we retain music as a tool throughout all of our years. In my opinion, I would say a lot is more similar between how kids and adults learn. Univer there are universal truths about learning mm -hmm. that we would it would do us a service to pay more attention to how we are similar to kids in learning than how we are different. I think that would lead to better practices. Wonderful. Um, Wonderful. And I also think um, music is an intriguing tool to improve memory, just like many other things. So silly things or surprising things or um, images rather than a whole paragraph of words. Mm. There are lots of ways to more quickly get information that are stickier in the brain. Mm. Um, one of my favorite books is Made to Stick by the Heath brothers, Chip and Dan Heath. Uh, and they talk about all of these elements of sticky ideas that speak right to this. I don't know if music mm. is exactly one of the things they talk about. Mm. Um, but there are tricks to memory when you look through the, the science of the brain that I think are really useful for teachers in education. So tonight, help me if I'm correct, tonight I've heard our brain likes to be emotionally safe mm -hmm. and our brain likes to be surprised. Our brain pays attention to things that are surprising. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of that goes back to evolution. That's what I find so fascinating about the brain is that if you think about us as these primal creatures that need to stay alive, we have to pay attention to things that might jump out at us or yep. might attack us. And even though we live in generally safe environments where we're not always worried about the threat of survival, hopefully, um, we can still treat triggers in our environment as though they're threats to our safety. Mm. And that's where our brain is going to pay attention to those things. I love it. I, and I, I love that you connect back to, you know, to our ancient ancestors. I, I, there's still a lot of that in us. There's still a so lot much. <laughs> There's more of that in us than other stuff. <laughs> yes. So as we get ready to, to bring closure to our time together, imagine if you will, Julia, that you are working with a school system and you are spending uh, the first day of what we hope are many with that staff, but you want to leave them with two or three major takeaways about the brain and how it learns. Uh, in this first session, what what would they be? That's a great question. Um, I think the top one would be that our brains are always changing throughout our entire lives. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. You know, the, the term for that is neuroplasticity. But I think woven underneath that is that potential is limitless because of neuroplasticity. So shed shed those boxes that you put yourself in, shed the boxes you put others in, and really start to think of ourselves as 
growing, changing people that have a lot more power to impact what our brain is capable of based on what the science tells us. Mm. So I think that would be one of them. Um, the other statement I like to make is that we feel before we think. Mm. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier related to the emotional systems in our brain. But we forget that. And even as adults, I think we're not quite there understanding that feelings jump onto the scene before thoughts do. Um, and so to really appreciate, especially for our young people in schools, that there's a learning opportunity there to think about mm. how we embrace ourselves as emotional beings before we get to that rational thought and just kind of embrace that more full picture of us as humans. We feel before we think. So I want to I want to play off of that and I want to share something. You tell me if I'm correct. We are feeling organisms that think rather than thinking organisms that feel. Absolutely. That's cool. <laughs> yes. That's that's totally true. And I think the other piece you said if I had to come up with 3, the third one would be our brain prioritizes safety over everything else. Mm. And I just don't know that that's common knowledge. Um, and so as educators, what I would say is, how are you creating a safe learning environment for your students? And for leaders, I get really excited about what this means for leadership, because I think there's not enough talk about this, not enough training for leaders. How are leaders creating a safe environment for their staff? And how are they creating personal relationships to motivate staff in the same ways that we expect teachers to motivate students? So, you know, that, that element of safety for success, I think, applies at all levels. I, I, love, I love the directness and the power of that statement. Our brain prioritizes safety over everything else. Everything else. Julia, thank you so much for this evening. I, I am immensely grateful. My friends, Julia Skolnick, uh, the creator, the founder, the CEO of Professional Learning Partnerships. And by the way, please check into her website. It is gorgeous. I was, I was, I was looking at it today. It's visually beautiful. It's fantastic information. For those of you who love neuroscience and STEM learning, it'll allow you to take a deep dig. And please contact Julia. Thank you, my friend. I really appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much, Tom. It's really been a pleasure. You inspire me. So it's an honor for me to be here. Uh, and our website is www.learningpartnerships.org. Beautiful. Michael, thank you as always, my friend. This is wonderful. Of course, anytime. And SEL champions, that brings us to the end of SEL Convergence. If you'd like more information or you want to get in touch with Julia, then just check out our show notes for all the links. Cool. Until next time.